So welcome again to Industrial Marketing Live. I'm Peyton Warren, a strategist at the industrial marketing agency, Gorilla76. I know, you're surprised. And I'm one of your IML hosts. Today, we are talking about product launches. Woohoo! <laughs> Um, so every company has uh, worked to present a new product, service, uh, or service to market, but product launches from manufacturers are just different, right? Um, development of hardware and software, there's customer research, trials sometimes, um, studies, and a lot of testing that has to happen before our companies are ready for the public to know about our newest offerings. So... Um, that's a lot, you know, to, so everyone here uh, knows that Gorilla is an agency. We're not a manufacturer ourselves. And while we have supported a lot of our clients with their go-to-market plans, we felt that this topic demanded some in-house voices, some which is why product launchers. Yes. Yes. Seasoned veteran product launchers here. So I'm very excited to introduce Jeffrey Schaefer and Daniel Percott. Did I pronounce your name correctly, Daniel? Well, at first you can call me Dan. My grandma okay. calls me Daniel. <laughs> um, and my last name is Percott. Close enough. Okay. okay. And and I probably pronounced Jeff's last name wrong too. I'm just on a roll. If you guys have been on the latest IMLs um, with pronunciations here, it's Schaffer or Schaefer? Schaefer. Schaefer. Okay. All right. Well, Dan is Worldwide Product Manager, Process Technology at Graco, and Jeff is Senior Worldwide Product Manager and North American Sales Manager for Hygienic Sanitary Equipment at Graco. <laughs> um, so Jeff and Dan, um, you recently launched the product Quantum Electric Double Diaphragm Pump. But before we even get into all the nuts and bolts of that, I would love just to hear a little bit more about y'all. because. Um, you know, you work in marketing, but your roles are, they don't have marketing in, in the title. So yeah, just tell everyone a little bit more about yourselves and what you do at Graco. I guess I'll start. So as you said, I'm the I'm the worldwide product manager for the industrial side of our business. Um, we kind of refer to it as the dirty side. Think water treatment, chemical processing, things like that. And we do have marketing roles here at Graco. It's all kind of rolled up into one. But a big portion of our job is doing a lot of preliminary market research, bringing product ideas to our engineering team, and then helping to manage those product projects. We don't have dedicated project managers at Graco. So that role really falls on Jeff and I within our division to manage those projects. Um, so we are the, we're not just the VOC, we are the conduit between our engineering team, our manufacturing teams, and then of course the sales and marketing group as well. It's a lot of hats. Sounds like it. <laughs> how many, um, if you guys have to yeah, guess, how many how many products do you think each of you have launched since you've been with Graco? Jeff's been around, I've been around for about eight years. Jeff's been around for about double that. So I'll let him start. Yeah, double that. But my first eight years were on the engineering side. So I've done product launches from an engineering aspect. And then also on the marketing side, on the marketing side, I'm going to say probably six to seven larger projects, right? We, we do product updates and product line extensions all the time as well. But when you look at like a big product launch, there's probably like six to seven large products. And for me, it's probably about five 
um, roughly five or six, but nothing at this scope. This is the largest project our division has ever undertaken. So this has been the culmination of about five years worth of development, planning, et cetera, now moving into launch. Um, so this is definitely by far the largest project I've ever worked on. That's wild. And Brendan, um, you know, I just also want to call out the the reason why we even know about this. Um, and we we pulled in Jeff and Dan is that Brendan is a former Graco guy himself. Yeah. Um, yeah, I was a marketing manager there for two years. And I think I supported probably like some of the smaller ones, right? So I supported Quantum and then I think three, maybe three-ish smaller like product launches too. So it's like it's like just a constant thing that Graco does, right? Heavy on the engineering and research side. And it just turns into a lot of new product updates and then large launches pretty frequently. Yeah, we try to do a large product launch about every other year so that that we're working on. And like Jeff said, we have product line extensions that we're doing um, pretty constantly. And but those are are generally much, much smaller from the development side, from the market research side, things like that. Um, Yeah, uh, Brendan, when he was part of our team, I mean, I know that the bulk of his time was spent supporting Quantum and that project. Um, So. But we always have things going on in the background as well. I mean, I think I have about five open engineering projects that I'm working on right now in conjunction with finalizing and working through uh, Quantum. So all that being said, you guys have some experience doing product launches. We have a little bit. Yeah. So I think let's let's bit. get into it. So like I have outlined here like four different phases. I don't know if we're going to get to all the phases here on the show, everyone. Um, you know, if we have extras that and things that we don't get to, we'll bring it into, you know, part two on the podcast. Uh, but so I kind of outlined four different phases, right? So product idea generation and validation, then we have product development and testing, launch preparation, and then the launch execution, and then, you know, the ongoing evaluation. So let's just jump into this first, this first thing with idea generation. Um, and Dan, you kind of mentioned, right, like voice of the customer. So can you just kind of talk about like where the idea from where, where quantum kind of came from, right? The second generation of EODD pumps. Where from both of your perspective, how did that project come about and how did you guys start that project? So I think if, if we really want to define what's going on here, we have to step back to the original electric electrified platform. And that was really customer demand. They were looking simply on the surface, give us a more energy efficient solution to what we're using today. So we were able to take that very vague request and start exploring what we could do to electrify a a typically pneumatic compressed air driven platform. There's a lot of nuts and bolts, a lot of design and a lot of engineering that go into that. But that's really where this started. So I'll kind of leave it there. But where Quantum was really born was the fact that our first iteration of, of an electrified platform really, while it met the customer's needs from a performance perspective, it was big, it was complex, it was expensive. So we really, Quantum started out, believe it or not, as a as a cost reduction exercise. And it, it morphed into this better mousetrap, let's call it, to allow people to have that less, com- less complexity, much lower cost, um, and give them something that really fit their needs. That's where Quantum was really born. It took an already really good product and made it more consumer friendly, mm-hmm. which, in the industrial space, Jeff and I work in a commoditized market most days. So our competitors race each other to the bottom. 
part of the point going forward is to get our, get us out of that as well so that we can maintain our margins and to really really differentiate ourselves from 50 other competitors yeah from a, a voice of customer aspect on this one i think it was a i don't want to say it was easier but we had all that feedback from our original electric pump right so we knew exactly what the market and the customers were looking for because we were trying to sell a product that kind of met that need today and so we had a lot of people coming back to us saying look i, I like the idea but the product needs to do this or be this or cost this in order for us to really convert that business so that was really helpful mm -hmm. i agree i mean when we launched the initial let's call it gen one of this product the voice of customer came screaming at us within six months they, they were very quick to tell us what we did wrong <laughs> it was a and and it wasn't based upon <laughs> performance durability what have you it was again it was price complexity size it was a handful of things that they said you need to overcome if you're really going to make this a product that's going to take the industrial world by storm. How do you guys both, how do you generate that voice of customer? Like, are you on the phone with, with your customers or distribution? Are you traveling in person? Like, what does that typically look like? How do you gather information? I mean, I think it's all of the above, but on the, on the four, it is generally, we have regional people in all over the world and they are really the boots on the ground here. So they get the feedback from our distribution channel, from our customers, and they're feeding that to us pretty constantly. And then I think when it goes beyond that, that's when Jeff and I are hitting the road. Because when it's all said and done, account people are still salespeople. They may not be super technical. They may not have always the wherewithal to ask the right questions. They're, they're basically the sponge, but we need more than a sponge. So that's when Jeff and I will step in and go out and gather really the technical information we need to put a customer requirements document together and get moving. So let's talk about that. So right there's the the gathering of information from the customers, which it seems like actually kind of came to you guys for the most part coming out of Gen Gen One. How did you sell this project then into you know uh, division leadership and engineering leadership? What was that like internal marketing like for you guys and then in internal sales to to get the project going? So we we have a phase gate system here, and and what we refer to as phase zero is where just that, Brendan, where marketing is selling Graco internally on the project. So what we will do is we will take and we will build what we refer to as a CRD, a customer requirements document. And we, we lay out exactly what's going on, as what the customer is really telling us. And what we have to do then is we'll work backwards from a, let's call it, a, everything's about money, right? So, so we work backwards from, say, a list price perspective to back ourselves into what the product should cost so we can still maintain margins that we need to. And then we build our forecast. And that's where we really get involved heavily with distribution with customers. And if we were to give you this at this price, how many would you buy? And, and sometimes that's exactly what the question is. Mm -hmm. And then we build our forecast out that way because feasibility on a project has to meet certain requirements at Graco from an internal rate of return and from an investment perspective so that we're actually going to make money. Um, we're we're a very conservative company that way, but we do have the latitude to work our way through buying back the project cost over years and not mm -hmm. say, well, you have to sell 20,000 units this year or it's not going to go. Um, that's how we sell it. That's our yeah. job. 
Phase zero belongs to marketing. We sell Graco internally, and then it moves into prototyping, engineering, manufacturing, and so on. So we have and some I think, questions you know, coming. Selling, sell, oh, no, go ahead, say, Jeff. Just to add to that, selling, selling management, really, Dan mentioned project metrics and product metrics. A lot of that comes down to what kind of return we're going to get, right? We're going to invest our money into the products that are going to drive the most return for us as an organization and then in turn the shareholders, right? So we look at uh, ROI and then how big the opportunity is. And that's kind of how we drive where we're going to spend our engineering and manufacturing resources to develop something. Mm -hmm. We've had a few questions come in in the chat, um, quite a few already, but one of them uh, comes from Julie. Um, Julie, I, I you're asking about um, what marketing should be doing a year ahead of launch while the concept is still in design. And so I think that's kind of what y'all are talking about here is like the voice of customer thing um, that's, that's pulling in your customer requirements document. Like, are there other pieces that are just like, must do for y'all during the initial stages of a new product? Yeah, I would say that um, a year is kind of an arbitrary number. For us, it depends on how long the project cycle is, right? Dan mentioned we've been working on quantum for five years. Yeah. So step one is voice of customer, getting the information back so we can feed it back to our internal engineering team and they can develop a product that the market wants. Uh, while they're in the development and we're doing testing and prototyping and all that kind of stuff, the next thing that we usually do is make sure that we understand what markets we're going to go after with it, right? Uh, so we can feed that information to our sales team and our distribution and how to position that product once we do have it available, right? So once we get all the information for engineering, they're off and running on their stuff. We're doing prototype testing and feasibility and getting it into manufacturing, then our job is to make sure that we understand, you know, price availability and how we position it so our sales team can be successful once we have it. And I think Jeff brought up a great point. And Brendan was actually part of this when he was on our team is about a year before launch, we start working on markets that we're really going to target because we don't want to take a scattershot approach to marketing, especially in the industrial space. If you look at Graco's business, we have... We have industrial pumping systems installed everywhere. To take a product like this and, and take that approach, we knew wasn't going to work. So we did our best to identify the top 10 markets that we were going to attack with this, primarily because they were the end users with the most systems we could replace. Mm -hmm. And we, we really needed to, with the investment we had put into this project, we had to be buffalo hunters. We could not go after this one system at a time. It had to be you know dozens of systems at a time to to make that return on investment as quickly as we could. So that's certainly what thing, we've been doing um, a year before launch. The other thing that I just thought about and we touched on briefly, but for everybody in the room, we, we sell through a distributor network, right? So everything goes through distribution. We don't sell direct to our end user, uh, which means a lot of work upfront before launch needs to be put into training materials and collateral and sales tools and all that kind of stuff that we can go out then and get our channel and our people up to speed on the product. So that needs to be done prior to launch so that once you roll out the product and say it's available, you can go out and get everybody educated and trained. And what we were really doing, especially in that, in that year, is we were trying to develop a strategy as to how we were going to attack the market. 
you know, Jeff made a great point. So if you think about Graco, we're like General Motors. We don't sell direct to a consumer. We sell through a, a dealer network, so to speak. So we decided that we wanted to take a real strategic approach and only go to the best partners we have. We've got something in the neighborhood of 1,500 people, 1,500 organizations authorized to sell our product in North America alone. We narrowed it down to basically 50 top-tier distributors or dealers that would sell the quantum product because we wanted them to be able to do justice to it. And to Jeff's point, that meant training them how to sell the product, how to market the product, how to train their technical people how to service the product. And that was all leading up to launch. I know we have a few distributors on this call and that whole concept of marketing as a distributor. What what made um, those top 50 really stand out for y'all with just like the quantity that they were able to sell or what what made them preferred distributors for you? And is there any advice you would give to the distributors here? So um, I'll, I'm going to jump in here quick, Peyton. Yeah. Uh, so I, I think Dan and Jeffy talked about a little bit like with positioning, right? And like most of Graco's products, especially like the the air pump that is like the the main breadwinner for the for this division. You know, it's all commodity based, right? It's all price based. And so like your positioning is can, like, can I be the cheapest pump available? Um, you know, there is a little bit of positioning where Graco is trying to be a little bit more premium, but at the most part, like you're just buying an air pump because you need something to to move fluid. And the way that we had positioned quantum was this was this is a high-end pump, right? And not everyone has the chops to do a technical sale and position this thing properly uh, to the right customers. And so I think a big part of that initial um, positioning was who is the the right channel partners that can support the positioning that we're trying to do instead of trying to just sell out of a catalog, right? Like can go in and do a consultative sale and sell a whole pump system instead of just, you know, onesie, twosie pumps here and there. So, and then guys, I'll just throw it back over to you then. What does that look like on the, from your the distribution side? Yeah, so great point too, Brennan, and, and you're absolutely right. So for it, this became a, this is a product that requires a technical sale perspective to it as well. And when we looked at our, our distributor network, the first thing we did to narrow things down is we grabbed the distributors that were generating the most revenue because that was a good place. That was an easy place to start. And then as you move through that list, you start looking at those with technical capabilities, with with service um, after the sale capability and things like that. And then those were kind of the criteria um, for getting to this point. Maybe they had multiple branches, so they were able to go after more more opportunities. Uh, that's really what we we boiled it down to. And, and it has worked out very well so far. And our our distribution network is very appreciative of that because while they may not have exclusivity to a product, they feel like they're an advantaged distributor that we didn't give it to their competitor down the block. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And on that point, you know, we talk about technical aptitude and service and all that kind of stuff, but we're all in the industrial space here, right? The industrial end user is not quick to make a change for new things, right? They know what's been working and they know what they've done for the last however many years. So getting people to buy something new isn't the easiest thing. And, you know, we have to get product in front of people, do demos and have them see the product and everything. And so we needed distributors and dealers that were willing to invest in inventory, invest in demo pumps and do that kind of stuff to get the product out in front of the end user, right? And not just send them an email or say, hey, look at this new thing. We're going to go out and do the work for it, right? Yep. Yeah, and I think the the people that are here 
if you're in the industri- if you're in the industrial manufacturing space, especially, you have a keen understanding that these are these are components in somebody's process. They are not quick. They do not want you upsetting their process in any capacity. So when you're introducing new technology that their maintenance teams may not be familiar with, that their process engineers are not familiar with, that is a an uphill battle. So or they don't have the utilities to support on the line, right? Correct. Yeah. And that was a big problem with Gen 1, right? Is like it required a lot of extra power that an air pump didn't need. It did. You know, it it required utility that they may not have had available. And so it not only was the pump expensive, the, the components expensive, but then you had the expense of running two utilities to the to the unit and things like that, which became prohibitive. Let's let's jump into like the development and testing phase here because I think that was really interesting when I was there. Uh, can you just kind of talk about like some of the uh, the the challenges you might have had like working between engineering and sales to get the product initially started into development? Right, so, like so you, you sold the the CRD to the engineering team. So like what then? What did that process look like once engineering took a hold of it? You know, like were they trying to take the pump in the wrong direction and you had to like course correct? You know, with voice of customer or like what did that process look like for you guys? Yeah, so that's always something we battle with our engineering group. Um, so we did a couple of things. First of all, when you look at our first generation of pump, we tried to develop a product that was everything to everyone in the market. We did that. We really did a nice job. But the problem was that comes at extreme cost when you're trying to fit 100% of the market. So we took a different avenue with quantum, and that was basically serving 75 to 80% of the market. And by doing that, we had to really rein in engineering. Our engineering group is very innovative and they're very creative, but we had to bring them back into the customer fold a little bit to say, look, this is what the customer wants, even though you may want to work on something else. And, and that that's a battle that we fight internally quite a bit um, because they will tend to go down a path that our customer isn't necessarily ready to follow. So that's where we come in as again, not defined as project managers, but we are managing the the customer for them as the conduit there, the voice. And I think specifically some of the challenges became with quantum is that they were maybe going down a path that was leading to a differentiated version of the same thing we had. So it wasn't driving the cost down as much as we wanted. It wasn't wasn't, uh, driving enough complexity out. And we had a couple of early prototypes that looked nothing like the finished product, you know, that we would bring out. We we did a little bit of a road show and it just wasn't resonating with the customer. Mm-hmm. When we asked them, would you convert to this product? The answer was overwhelmingly no. So we knew at that point that we had a had a pretty significant issue. And we were 18 months into the project at that point. We were way beyond alpha prototyping. So we we made some course correction. We started looking at from an engineering perspective some other external partners that could help us with some of the, some motor development things and like that and then we moved toward quantum so by the time we hit about the 24 month mark with this project we started from zero again wow. we basically looked at it from a sunk cost perspective and I shouldn't say that too loud because we hate that word that <laughs> phrase here um we'll cut it we, the recording correct we yeah can you edit that out uh, <laughs> But that was the bottom line is we we made a pretty significant course correction. And that was solely driven by what we were going to be able to give the customer. 
Mm-hmm. But I mean, that was so necessary because the customer was telling you exactly what they needed and the direction you were going was wrong. So yeah, maybe there's some sunk cost, but I mean, a lot of saved, um, a lot of, a lot of time was saved in making that course correction too. I think like that, and this kind of came up as a joke in, in the thread, you know, rain and engineering is our class on that. Um, you know, so I, I, I would be, I would like to know, like, what are some uh, tips that you guys have for interacting with your engineering team and getting them to kind of refocus when maybe they're really excited about going in a direction that doesn't align? So I think for me, and I'll I'll speak real briefly and then Jeff can share his experience. For me, it's really making sure engineering understands that when we're all having meetings, project meetings, they're they're very quick to identify marketing as the customer. It's very important to keep them on track. I'm not your customer. The customer is the customer. I it's not what marketing wants, it's what the market wants. And and they can be very stubborn that way because they see Dan in a meeting, well, I I correct them all the time. They'll say, "Well, Dan says." No, Dan didn't say. The customer said, "This is what they want." It's mm-hmm. you really have to keep them laser focused on what they're working toward is the customer's desire. Mm-hmm. And and that can be it can be very challenging, especially when you're sitting in a room with a bunch of senior engineers and you aren't one. So I, I think also it's very important to um, embrace the engineering process because you will definitely garner more respect if you get your hands dirty with these folks. Yeah, Jeff, what about yeah, you think- from from being an engineer in the past? <laughs> He has it I think easy it helps, right? Because, because I think the engine, yeah, yeah, the engineering group does give me a little bit of respect because I kind of understand what they're going through. But to Dan's point, making them understand it's a customer, I think getting the engineering team out in front of the customer helps with that a lot. You know, we talk a lot about that here that our engineering team can't just sit inside the walls of Graco and design product. They need to also get out in the field and watch how users are using them and, and hear the feedback firsthand because. You know, we gather a lot of stuff and we're out there all the time, but it does carry a little more weight when the engineering group hears it firsthand from the guy who's working on the pump or the guy who's installing the pump in their facility. And then, you know, the other thing that I think helps a lot is making them understand that there are trade-offs for decisions, right? I mean, Dan mentioned our target was the 80% of the market and features that we can put in to the product would have been really cool. But don't drive that much volume or revenue for Graco, right? And our our first pass at this was really to target the 80%, not the 20%, and let engineering know that, well, this thing that you want to add in there, that doesn't fit what this large volume of customers is wanting, right? So let's do this first, and then we can determine if there are things that we add onto the product on the road, right? And I think to that point, it that's a very unique perspective for us is looking at a narrower portion of the of the market if you think about it as a bell curve i have been i have told our sales team i bet a dozen times a week walk away from the outliers they're not your customer they're not driving volume jeff made a perfect illusion they're not driving significant revenue for us anyway there is more than enough business in the 75 to 80 percent to sustain us for the next 50 years and concentrating over here or over here for exorbitant amounts of time doesn't benefit anyone. 
I want to, I'm, I'm looking at Joel Wittenberger on the, did that answer your question, Joel? I saw it come up in the chat about engineering. You don't have to unmute if you don't want to, but if you have a follow-up, I'd welcome it. Good. <laughs> uh, I, just, I know, I know that guy, so I'll comment for him. I just liked, uh, it is. I like Julie's comment that she just has to go to the president to get or the CEO to get it taken care of. And it's funny that Joel asked that question. Yeah. Well, I, and I hate that. Quite honestly, yeah, that's my role. And I hate that. I hate, and I think Dan did a great job of commenting as I hear these comments. Well, that's what, that's what Eric, the sales guy, that's what Joel wants. It doesn't matter. I don't give a darn what I want. We want to, we want to provide what the customer wants because that's what sells. And that's what it's all about, guys. Uh, but yeah, I, I think it's interesting that you guys have got a, you obviously have a a fluid communication set up amongst and between because when when you come back and you're down that road and the marketing team or the salesman says, well, this isn't right, man, it's a, it's, <laughs> it's hard to get the engineering squad to pivot. It's tough. And uh, I think, mm -hmm. I think your comments about focus on the end user, focus on the player. Somebody just recently commented and said, get the engineers in the room with the customer. And, and that's what we're doing. That's where we're succeeding is when operations people talk to the operations people, then we get good answers, you know, that then we really, then we really hit it. So mm -hmm. we've got Chris. where my mute button is. <laughs> we've got Chris's hand up. So I'm going to, Hey, Chris, uh, you got something to add here? Hey, sorry. Uh, this is Celine. Uh, oh, well, I, I see you're on Chris's uh, <laughs> buddy. Yeah. You get to share Zoom rooms. <laughs> no worries. Uh, a quick note, uh, at a specific size, I have witnessed product management teams, or at least a single product manager, be very successful at bridging the marketing engineering gap, having them own the product roadmap versus having engineering own it usually alleviates a lot of uh, these uh, challenges that the marketing folks are talking about. Mm -hmm. Just wanted to say that. Awesome. Thanks for the ad. Yeah. So I think one thing that's interesting here for both of you guys. So, you know, Dan, you're on the industrial dirty side. Jeff, you work on the clean side, right? With food and bev and personal care and pharmaceuticals. Yep. So like, was there any, um, was there any headbutting between the both of you uh, during product development? Cause like I see the, the pump behind Jeff, you know, that nice stainless steel pump, you know, Dan, you probably don't need stainless steel as much. So like, what was like those conversations like between the both of you making sure, you know, each of your markets, you know, quote unquote, got what they needed from the pump without, you know, exorbitant costs on, on development side. Well, so, a great I guess question from, because oh, go ahead, Jeff. Dan, oh, as I say, dance pump is much more price sensitive than the hygienic or sanitary side, right? So we can do some things on my side of the business to, you know, tailor the product towards food and beverage and everything and make it more expensive. And our end users will, will pay that because they have to have that. So there was definitely a balance in, you know, I would say a lot of the focus was on the industrial side of the business to make sure that we could hit the price point and then, we tried to add on things to my product line as needed um, within reason. And there were certain things that we couldn't do, right, that our users would definitely like. But I think we did a pretty good job of balancing both of them and starting with Dan's product first, right, and making sure that his customer base is taken care of because it's more price sensitive and there's more volume. Mm -hmm. And then adding the cost just just on our side of the business, not to everything, right? 
Yeah, and I mean, I think I, I certainly wouldn't ever say there's butting heads because the end goal is the same, especially on this project. Yeah. It it lended itself to both sides of the business very well. So to Jeff's point, we were able to do a few things on on the clean side of the business that drive costs, but his customers will bear that. Um, but it was it was very much a situation that we were working toward a solution for both sides of the business without going in two completely separate directions and manage this as two separate projects, which we wouldn't have been able to do because the we both prod both sides of the business have to support the one. Mm-hmm. Do you okay? Another question: Do you guys think it's more important to have the perfect product or get to market faster? That's exactly where my head was going yeah, to. Like, wait, like, how, where did quantum kind of fall on that on that scale? That's a really good question. It's hard to quantify, but I'm going to try from my perspective. You know, Graco, whether good, bad, or otherwise, is kind of the Toyota of the industrial world. We will not launch a project or product that's not nearly perfect. Because of that, and I saw something come through on the chat about the five-year duration. That's one of the reasons why. Because we tested this product every step of the way for so long that it gets very frustrating, I know, to me, and I believe to Jeff as well. Um, for us, it's more about the perfect product as opposed to doing it in a timely way. Now, Quantum made us shift a little bit because at about the five-year mark, remember, we were just spending money. We had no revenue. So we did push a, we did make a limited release of this product about a year ago, August to do a little, to get almost more, it was almost like extended field trial, let's call it. We wanted to get four or 500 of these systems in place so that we could kind of evaluate it as well as start generating some revenue. Because I mean, at, up to that point, we were just hemorrhaging money. Um, and and it did come down from on high that you need to make a point to try to release some of this, which is what we did. Yeah. But I think the short answer is we would prefer quality before speed. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it definitely shows in this product launch. Yeah, and we, we talked a little bit. Yeah. Uh, Oh, sorry, Jeff, if you wanted to add more to that. Yeah, I did. I just want to say, and I think to Dan's point, we definitely prioritize quality. Um, and I think the question on the perfect product is you're always, I feel like we always get feedback that things can change and you can tweak things, you can make things better. And at some point, you do have to stop messing with it and understand that what you have does serve the customer need, right? Otherwise, we never get anything out there. And that's something that's really difficult for engineering to do too, to understand that there's, things that they could do to make improvements and maybe it's not the best version of what we have, but it is good enough, right? To serve the market and the capacity that we're trying to. And, you know, there's product improvements and extensions that we can do. So at some point we have to quit dumping money into the development and changing things so that we can get something out, right? Mm-hmm. Which I think is an important as Dan and my role to communicate that. Although you may be able to make this piece a little bit better, what we have right now is good enough. We're going to go with it right now and get it out to market so we can start getting some of that revenue, right? And I, I think for the sake of, that's a great point that Jeff brings up, that the the for the sake of this project, that was a manufacturability hurdle. We know that there are there are better ways to design some parts of this pump that'll make it easier for our manufacturing folks. But in order to get the pump out and start generating revenue, we had to make a sacrifice there. If we had waited for perfection, we would still be waiting. Mm. Mm-hmm. 
we talked a little bit about this when we were uh, chatting earlier, earlier this week to prepare for this conversation. And, uh, you know, one of the things that we asked was, did you launch everything all at once or, or did like, what did the actual launch look like? And Brendan, if I'm jumping ahead, uh, yeah, I think, I think that might be jumping ahead pain. Cause we haven't even talked about like marketing plans and everything. I know. So, I'll, so maybe I'll... what we need to do, and we'll, we'll just kind of plan this on the fly here is maybe we need to just have the actual launch conversation happen in the podcast. Yeah. Cause we're running out of time. Yeah. <laughs> so we did get a question in from Megan. So what did the marketing plan communication plan look like when you release this product? Right. And it's like, how do you create demand for a replacement? Like, you already have an AODD or a, you know first gen EODD, but we have something way better now. So, like, how do you have that conversation? How do you create a marketing plan to talk about replacing what was already in the field? And did you want to replace what was in the field, or was it trying to take away market share from another competitor? I mean, we always want market share. We don't right. want to replace Graco parts, <laughs> but, but I think pre-launch activity, especially when we identified those those advantaged partners, let's call it at the distribution level. We were quick to go out and start marketing to them what this was going to be, what it was going to, what it was going to do, where we were going to go, and what our plan was. So, for example, whether that was sharing our what our social presence was going to look like, what our Google AdWords were going to look like, things like that, so that they could piggyback on. That was really important to us right out of the gate to make sure that those those folks that we were go- going to partner with in the market knew what we were up to before we started. Because historically, we've not done a great job with that. We would launch a project. Here's all your marketing collateral. Go get them. So we really made a point to what I would refer to as pre-launch with those preferred distributors to get out and get that done on the front end so that they had an idea that when the product was released, they knew where to go. They, they, they could go hunting as opposed to, here's the product, figure it out. Mm-hmm. When, and on that question, I was just looking at the chat, the, you know, how do you promote buy this instead of this other thing we've been telling you for years? And one of the things we do in product development at Graco is we try to make things as proprietary as possible, right? So this technology that we came out with is very patented. Um, we're not the market leader in the diaphragm pump space. And so we were more than okay with telling people to go after any and every business because we believe that if we put the electric pump in, we don't have competition, mm-hmm. right? So uh, from that perspective, it was easy to really kind of direct the channel partners and everybody to go after any and every opportunity, um, knowing that some of that might fall into the Graco camp, but we're still better off with the new product versus the old product. Yeah, that's a great point, too, because I think a lot of folks in this room can probably relate to when you're in the industrial space and you've got a good distribution network and they go in trying to sell your product they might be competing with 10 others. So all of a sudden, everybody has to give away margin just to get a sale. Mm-hmm. As Jeff made made very clear, part of our communication was we're giving you something that nobody can come bid against you on. Yeah. This this is this is has uh is highly protected by IP. There's no real direct competitor out there at any price point. It doesn't matter what we charge for it. So to be able to give our distributors that really resonated with them and it got them excited that I don't have to go to a purchasing agent and that person's after I do all the work, that person's going to send it out for five bids. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think 
from my perspective, like if you follow Dan and Jeff and like the great Graco process showcase pages on LinkedIn, um, I think you guys do a really good job of talking about your differentiated features without getting too technical, right? Like you just kind of talk about like we have this like this new cool electric motor, right? The other way to do it is with you know expensive, dirty air, right? But you could go and talk about like all the fancy things inside of the motor, but really, like, does anybody care about that? Probably not, right? They care about like, oh, there's this cool motor that fits within the same footprint that I had before, you know, with my other with my air pump. And so you guys just talk about the differentiating feature of it being electric, right? And then you always talk about the differentiated value that comes with that of good ROI, right? Or reduced energy costs over time. Um, and so I think like a big part of that marketing plan was like understanding that positioning. And here's the one thing that makes out of everything, here's the one really thing that makes the quantum pump different. And here's the one main outcome you're going to get from the Graco quantum pump you can't get from the other air pumps on the market. And That's you guys just talk about back. those things only. And I think it just has really helped people understand like, oh, this is what the quantum pump is. It's an electric pump that saves me money over time. And it doesn't have to get more complicated than that. And you can guys can create a marketing plan and a communication plan that lasts for years just off of those two things. I agree that historically what we've done, because we are an engineering company pretty much first and foremost, is we've typically buried our distributors and our, our customers in techno speak. Yeah. Bullet Look points at how great our technology people. is. And I'm going to tell you why. Well, in this space, you lose people so quickly to just go out and say, there's an energy play and we are going to help you achieve your sustainability goals. That's the conversation now. Yeah. It doesn't have to be more than that. Your only understanding of the pump is you need to know that it's going to work. Yeah. That's all. I'm going to tell you it's going to it's going to replace your dirty pneumatic powered pump, as you say, Brandon. Um, and in the process, I'm going to save you a boatload of money. Mm -hmm. And I think that that lesson can go for everyone. Like Julie, I know like you're selling really expensive high-end pieces of equipment, you know, automation machines. Like just having a one differentiated feature and value is all I think you need, right? And Mary, you know, you're selling a CRM. Like you probably do the same thing with your CRM, right? Um, and I, I think just simplifying your message into the one or two things that really set you apart, both on like my feature side and then the outcomes that come from that is huge. Love it. Well, I know we have, well, just our own questions. Um, it, we have so many more uh, that we want to cover, but I also want to respect everybody's time this morning. Um, we didn't even really talk about the actual launch of, of the product. So I think that's probably where the conversation needs to go next. And, and also like the post-launch, like afterglow yeah. that you guys are currently in and what you've been experiencing there. Um, but I think uh, probably a good time just to round out our conversation for today. Um, and we covered a lot of ground. So I guess I'd like to uh, uh, punt it back over to Jeff and Dan and just say, like, uh, of everything that we covered today or things that we haven't gotten to cover yet, or is there something that you want to circle back to or, or highlight as, um, you know, a big lesson learned or something that you wish folks would take from this conversation? I think in the industrial space that we play in, it's very it's very key to understand that it, it's like the old days when you would walk into an auto parts store and they would have a catalog of books this big and you are that much of their catalog. That value prop becomes very, very key at that point to give that distributor the ammunition and the get the mind share to go out and push this product. That has always been a challenge for us. Um, and 
we're trying to move towards products and launching in a way that will make Graco be first and foremost in their mind. Whether that's they're going to make more margin with us, we're going to make the sales uh, cycle easier for them, whatever that looks like is what we're trying to accomplish. Because for sure on my side of the business, I've got distribution network that has, they represent five of my direct competitors as well. So it's very important to make sure that they're leading with us because we've given them a reason to. Yeah, I would say, first and foremost, we talked about this a little bit, but make sure that in going through the process, you figure out a way to put the customer first, right? Um, And that internal conversation and not point Dan as a customer or myself as a customer that the engineering and, and the entire internal team really knows that you're developing this for the end user in the market and their voice needs to be heard and what they want. Um, and then also that at some point you're going to go down a road that doesn't make sense and being able to recognize that and change direction is, is important. And the sooner you can do that and change that direction, the better off you're going to be from an organization standpoint, right? Instead of trying to plow through down a road where you might think it's not the right place to go. If you have that conversation earlier, even though it might be painful, you're going to be better off in the long run. And and I really think that it's important for us as marketers in the industrial space to really embrace the engineering process. I kind of alluded to it a little bit earlier. Whether you're a technical person or not, you don't have to understand which bolt goes which with which nut. But you need to have a keen understanding and be the subject matter expert of your product. It it helps so much. I run into I run into my peers all the time in this field. And they don't know anything about the product they sell other than the value proposition. Because when we're out there, it could be at a trade show, it could be in front of customers. The engineer isn't with you. Hmm. You really need to embrace the engineering process throughout the product development state phase. Because when it's all said and done, you're going to be the one standing in front of the customer, likely with a salesperson, and they aren't going to have the answers. It's going to be you. And that's it's probably a little unique to Graco that we have the opportunity to do that. Um, I don't know that everybody does, but I encourage everyone, if you don't, try. Try to get as involved in as you can with the engineering process to understand what's happening with these products. Just stellar advice all the way around, all the way around. Uh, I, Brendan, uh, thanks so much for introducing us to these lovely oh, folks. Oh, yeah. uh, Jeff and Dan, um, standing ovation. Thank you so much for opening, uh, like pulling back that curtain. Uh, I think this has been such a valuable conversation. Um, so many of us are experiencing, you know, right now in our own lives and just to be able to kind of stand on your shoulders a little bit and learn from what y'all have done has been incredible. So thank you so much for joining us today. Um, if folks do want to learn more about uh, what y'all are doing at Graco or uh, catch up with you guys, is LinkedIn the best place or is there a better place to get in touch with y'all? LinkedIn is a great place to start. Uh, Jeff and I are both on there. We're both very active with LinkedIn as well. Um, you know, you can- following. Reach out to us through <laughs> through the Graco website as well. Um, if if you guys, when you do your podcast, I mean, you're more than you're more than welcome to share our personal information, our emails, and our phone numbers. Yeah, we got you. Yeah, awesome. absolutely. The Y'all conversation definitely address. doesn't have to stop here. There's a lot going on. 
Cool. Well, um, with that, um, if you do want to keep this conversation going um, between now and our next IML, um, you're welcome to join us in Slack, everyone. If you are not already in the Slack community and you want to join, feel free to reach out to any gorilla on LinkedIn or um, put it in the chat right here and we'll get you added immediately. And uh, our next IML, which is um, October, I can't believe it. Uh, we're going to be pushing ourselves to the edge of our own understanding um, with a conversation on AI. There's still so much to, to digest with um, AI, and, and we are definitely still learning. So we want to take the conversation on October 5th to talk through how we are using AI already. And I would really, really love if the folks who are here on this call would come back with anything that you're doing. Um and just kind of have a, a chat about what's working, what's not, um, and figure out the best way that we can use it to maximize our time and our impact. Uh, so bring your use cases and join that conversation. We're really looking forward to it. And uh, really, everyone, thanks again. Hope you have a great rest of your Thursday, and we will see you next time. Bye.